Everybody was a cartoonist that way. You Hefner was a cartoonist. Dear friends of the comic strip, it is my pleasure to welcome you this evening in the name of the PhD program in French at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Uh, as you know, the panel on La Bande Dessinée that we look forward to this evening is jointly sponsored by the French Cultural Services, by the Penn Club of New York, en premier lieu, and uh, by the PhD program in French here. When I was asked to uh, say a few words to introduce this panel and this idea, uh, it threw me into a deep perplexity. La bande dessinée, what do I know about it? Uh, and who am I to talk about it? The, my perplexity dissolved in a flash of realization that I was behaving like Monsieur Jourdain who spoke prose all his life and wasn't aware of it. I've been reading uh, comic strips, La Bande Dessinée, since I was knee-high to a grasshopper uh, back in Belgium where uh, I uh, grew up. Uh, there, were a variety, there was a variety of uh, uh, publications with uh, uh, flashy names like Cricri, Le Petit Illustré, Les Patins, which, to which I subscribe, uh, and uh, which came into the house and which brought me, among other things, uh, among other adventures, those of that, uh, uh, that sympathetic uh, band of malefactors, Les Pieds Niclés, uh, three of them one with an eye patch, one with a very long nose, and one perpetually unshaven. Uh, so uh, I'm really not uh, a, a stranger to the bande dessinée or to the comic strip. When I uh, ceased being a child, uh, did I uh, lay away uh, childish things as the apostle uh, advisors, uh, not at all. I came to this country in my teens. I was grabbed uh, very soon both concurrently by the American army uh, and by Sad Sack, uh, the uh, strip, comic strip in uh, the Stars and Stripes, uh, the army newspaper. And there followed over the years of uh, what I'm pleased to call my maturity, uh, infatuations successively with uh, Little Abner uh, and uh, Pogo and uh, Peanuts. Uh, and at present, I think I own a complete collection of Doonesbury. Now, of course, Bande dessinée comic strip is a bit of a misnomer for the rather serious business uh, of, uh, of this evening. What I spoke of uh, hitherto uh, is really uh, characterized uh, by its brevity, uh, essentially, by its episodic uh, nature, 
the length precisely of a strip, uh, at best of a page. Although uh, in the Doonesbury uh, Chronicles, one does move to episodes uh, that are several pages long. I think that what uh, our uh, speakers have in mind uh, is a more considerable uh, development of this uh, uh, essential uh, cohabitation of word and, uh, and picture. And these are really uh, extended fictions, uh, which uh, nowadays are apparently all the rage in Europe. There again, I discovered that I wasn't uh, the ignoramus I took myself for. I have uh, read and uh, I, uh, I own uh, Jules Pfeiffer's uh, extraordinary tantrum, The Adventure of a Man of a Pater Familias of 42, uh, who, uh, by way of a tantrum, uh, manages to uh, return to the blessed age of two. Uh, and uh, even, uh, I think, uh, as impressively, if not more so, uh, the work of one of our panelists, Art Seligman, that extraordinary work uh, entitled Mouse, uh, which uh, quite paradoxically manages uh, to deal with the most painful uh, matters, uh, with memories of the Holocaust, in the form of a, uh, of a bande dessinée uh, volume, which uh, uh, is uh, fable cum oral history, cum memoir, uh, and, uh, uh, and harbors uh, uh, many complexities. As I looked over uh, my copy of Mouse, my copy of Tantrum uh, last night, uh, it, it uh, occurred to me uh, that something of the miracle of, uh, of the success of uh, these, uh, uh, these works is a matter of uh, a strange uh, uh, conjunction of uh, two economies. <coughs> Economy of line uh, in the, the art of the cartoonist and the forced economy of text uh, in the art of the caption. And uh, I think one of the questions which I hope uh, and look forward with eager anticipation to the discussion of uh, uh, this evening is how from the conjunction of these two spare lines, these two economies, we uh, propel a narrative that is hospitable to both insight and complexity. In order for us to be able uh, to hear uh, uh, how this uh, is done, it is time now that uh, I took the further pleasure of uh, introducing to you the moderator uh, of the panel, uh, Madame Aniko Ensolal, uh, who is uh, the cultural uh, counselor uh, of the uh, French uh, embassy, Conseiller Culturel, that is to say the linchpin between the French and the American university worlds. She is, as you uh, most likely know, uh, the author of a considerable biography of uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, une vie. 
she uh, has taught uh, French literature in a variety of universities, the uh, Freie Universität Berlin, uh, in what was then called West Berlin, uh, the Hebrew University uh, on Mount Scopus in Jerusalem, and, uh, and the Sorbonne. What her affinities are with the bande dessinée, uh, I hope to discover uh, as the panel gets going. It is now my pleasure to, it, to present her to you, Madame. Okay, good evening. Uh, my relationship with Bande dessinée are, are very, very um, wide and diverse. But let me tell you that Jean-Paul Sartre started to read American comic books when he was five years old, after the, 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 the first World War I. And it was Texas Jack, Sitting Ball, Nick Carter, and which is the last one, Maurice? Uh, Something City, like that. Buffal and Buffalo Bill, of course. Buffalo Bill, of course. So <clears throat> I reread these things for my book. So <clears throat> let's start with that, all right? So I'm very happy to be there, Professor Goodwas. I want to thank you so much because it's a very good symbol for us that this panel is taking place in a university in the Graduate Center of uh, French at CUNY because um, the main reason why we are here all together tonight is that the bande dessinée in France and the comic books in the US are having a cross-cultural love affair which is not very easy to explain, okay? So let me just tell you one sentence from a very bright uh, piece by Maurice Horn which tells everything about the, the, the evening tonight. He says the, the piece is called American Comics in France, a Cultural Evaluation. He says, no other form of art, with the possible exception of the movies, holds such fascination and appeal for the general public. And known, with the exception of jazz music, is so overwhelmingly American in its expression. Yet the American comics have until recently suffered only scorn, neglect, and ignorance in the country of their birth. So that's the whole reason why we're here because France has, has discovered American comic books, and France has made it as a genre in itself, with a lot of festivals and bookstores and PhDs and department of universities taking care of it. And the whole thing is, why is this genre here in the US so, um, I mean, in such a state today? So that's all I'm going to say tonight. Uh, I first want to introduce uh, each of our panelists. Let's start with the extreme left. Let me tell you, first of all, that it's a mixture of actors, of makers of bande dessinée. Uh, we have artists, writers, and we have experts, okay? And it's also a mixture of people who, who are binational or who know the two cultures very well. And so each of them has this kind of um, quality. On the left, the extreme left, uh, Jerome Charin, who's uh, I can, I can uh, qualify the American novelist in Paris for the 90s. Right, Jerry? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, he what? Right, after Hemingway and so on, you know, in the end. But now he's going to be the next one. He lives in Montparnasse, and he's sharing his time between Paris and the, and the United States. Uh, Jérôme has written, like, more than 23 books, most of them, you know, novels, and he's very, very well known in France for his crimey books, and he has a real, a real core, cool, a real audience, a real 
great number of women journalists chasing him when he, when he puts one foot in Paris. And, and Jérôme, as another experience, wanted to experience, I mean, I, I think he's going to tell us about that, the genesis of his first bande dessinée in France. It's extremely interesting. Among them, he wrote four bande dessinées, and I had the privilege of being part of the first one, of trying to co make him communicate with the, with the artist who was doing his bande dessinée, called Book. It was very hard, I must tell you, because Jérôme didn't say a word of French then, and Book didn't say a word of English then. And they had to do a common work of art together. It was kind of fun. It was like f 10 years ago, a long time ago. <laughs> so, um, and the first bande dessinée that Jérôme ever made got the prix de la bande dessinée in Angoulême. So first, first move, first trial for first prize, you know. Uh, now, uh, uh, Jérôme just published a book which, uh, with, uh, with Lustal, who's on my right, called Les Frères Adamov, and you're, you're seeing here the galley proof, so it's a scoop, you know, here you are. And, um, and Jérôme uh, is going to, I mean, he's going to tell you about, about that, okay? Many different things. He's going to adapt a, a novel by Ray Chandler called The Little Sister. So things are going very well with him uh, about the bed and his agent is in the room, so if you need anything, Georges Borchardt will tell you about that, okay? How much and so on. So next to Jérôme is sitting Arch Spiegelman, who's a unique example in the bande dessinée in this country. Art uh, started at the age of 13 with underground comics, and he says about his own works, I try to make every panel count, and sometimes I work as long as a month on a page. It is like concentrated orange juice. Okay? Uh, Art started, founded with his wife, uh, who's French, Françoise Mouly, row books and graphics in 1980. And he introduced in the US uh, foreign artists like the French um, artist Jacques Tardy, who is very well known in France. And as, uh, as you must know, uh, his uh, book, Mouse, published first in, in row, then by Pantheon Books in 1986. Um, got an incredible success all around the world. He had 15 foreign translations, uh, French, German, Italian, and so on. And um, in the English language, it was 150 to 200,000 um, copies. So, I mean, there's nothing else to say, and you know him, and it's, uh, it's fantastic to have him tonight with us. Bob Hughes is the Australian-born um, art critic at Time magazine that you can read every, every week. Uh, he says that, what did you say? But he said, why am I on this panel? He said something funny. I can't remember now. It was the product of pure terror. <laughs> uh, the, um, no, I, I, I mean, I am not a bande dessinée specialist at all. Yes. But, uh, and I guess you wanted me here because I'm not, exactly. since you have so many who are. <laughs> Bob wrote uh, The Art of Australia, Heaven and Hell in Western Art. Uh, his study on the modern called The Shock of the New is uh, being republished now. And the, the, the book I like the best is the one called Nothing If Not Critical, which is going to appear next. Uh, Paperback this year. This yeah, year. Yeah. Where, which publisher? Um, well, I left Vintage over Bretton Easton Ellis, so that uh, <laughs> um, uh, it's Viking uh, uh, Penguin. Okay. And also, the, the last thing I just heard is that Bob was a cartoonist when he was 24 years old. 
So maybe there's going to be some interesting um, stories about that. And my uh, next right is Jacques Lustal, who's, uh, who just made this bande dessinée with Jérôme, who's uh, started as an architect and who's, who's still going on as introducing himself as an architect, right? Um, no, I just say I'm a study of, of architecture, but uh, while I was doing my studies, I started to publish uh, two books when I finished my studies. And after, I preferred to go on comics and drawings instead of architecture. Mm -hmm. No, I just say I'm an architect like that. <laughs> it's not important. So, uh, Lustal published 18 different books, including New York, Miami. Cliché d'amour, Barney, La Note Bleue, um, Carnet de Voyage, and the last one, collaboration with Jérôme Charin, Adamov. Uh, most of them are translated in, in German, uh, in the United States for them, and uh, in many, many different uh, European countries. He's th like the young generation of French um, artists, and Lustal also um, goes to every single fair in Angoulême, in Grenoble, and all around the world. Yeah, it's the life of a French drawer. French what? French drawer. Drawer. Drawer, yes. Ah, yes. ah French cardinal. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then, in the end, last but not least, Maurice Horn. Maurice Horn is the anthologist of Bande dessinée. Uh, apart from that, he's been writing more than 50 novels, like crime books and so on, and uh, uh, science fiction, uh, studying being interested in the bande dessinée since 1963, he organized the exhibition Bande dessinée and Narrative Figuration at the Musée du Louvre in 1967. And he held, he held the first international convention of the bande dessinée in New York in 1968. Uh, he also had a New York Cultural Center in 1971, the exhibition called 75 Years of the Comics. Uh, so if you, if you want to read about Bede, you will bump into him every single step. Uh, a History of Comic Strips is book published in 1971. The World's Encyclopedia of Comics, more than 100,000 copies. Women in the <coughs> Comics, 1977. Comics of the American West, 1977 too. And the World Encyclopedia of Cartoon, 1980. Apart from that, many, I mean, many serious and academic pieces and conferences on the Bede in the US and in Europe and a perfectly French-American citizen because you've been living in New York City for, what, 25 years? 20, more than 25. One, more than 25 years. Okay, so the only <coughs> rule here on this panel will be that everybody has to be short, precise, and accurate, okay? <laughs> <laughs> voilà, what's wrong? Didn't I? C'est typique, mon français. Oh, why? You're going to see. Okay. So uh, just before starting to, to, to go on our different points, I just want to go on, a, on the table, uh, starting with Jérôme again, to ask each of you, that's my surprise question. How old were you when you read your first BD, and what, which one was it? Jérôme, one second. <laughs> I was about two years old, and I don't think I could read, but I absolutely, it was a Donald Duck, and I think it kept me for life. I mean, I was really wounded in a terrible way because I just loved these pictures. And I never wanted to read after that. I just wanted to look at images. No, I wasn't two. Let's say I was three or four. But I was very, very young. And I think it ruined me as a reader forever. Good. Uh, Art? Oh, gee, I guess I was about five years old. And I couldn't read. And it was a Batman comic. 
And I was trying to figure out whether it was a good guy or a bad guy. So it was actually <laughs> part of what helped me understand learning how to read was trying to track these sort of pictures and make some kind of sense of it. Uh, then the next most important comics experience was probably Mad Magazine and Mad Comics when I was about seven. And it was the first stirrings of sexuality was seeing this cartoon drawings of Marilyn Monroe in an early Mad comic that I knew my parents shouldn't see. <laughs> good, Bob. Uh, I guess I was about eight. Uh, it would have been in Australia. And it wasn't a comic strip that anybody would recognize outside of Australia. It was a strip called Ginger Megs, which was in the, um, uh, the, Sunday, the Sunday papers. And the only reason why I remember so vividly reading it was that it was the only one that I was allowed to read. All other comics were banned and they were considered deeply immoral, uh, particularly the Policier comics. Um, so the paper would be snatched away from my hands after I'd had my ration of Ginger Megs. Um, <laughs> American comics on the whole didn't percolate to Australia until much later than that. Oh, that's interesting. And French ones never. <coughs> really? I have to do something well, about it? Uh, since, since the 70s, yes, but uh, the American ones... Uh, they were mainly banned uh-huh. because of the influence of Wertenbaker, uh, which we call Wertheimer, or whatever his name was, which we can get to later. But anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> Good. Zach? Uh, I think I was six or seven. It was uh, Tintin. I don't know if... Uh, I don't know which what the name is. Tintin in America? No, no. Tintin and the uh, land of gold... Uh, Golden, uh, the land oil. of black gold. Black gold, yeah. Ah, au pays de l'or noir. Ça commence par le type qui chante, là. Uh, yes, uh, Charles Trenesson. Voilà, yeah. That's it. Yeah, Tintin, after I think it And was what was your first I mean, re- impression, reaction? What was it? Well, I remember more um, a great pleasure of reading. You know, I remember the book I read and the, the armchair where I was reading it. You see? It's <laughs> a good uh, childhood souvenir. Good. Uh, well, it was in France. I was four or five years old. My father would by me every Sunday will bring to me the Journal de Mickey, oui. mm-hmm. Mickey's own newspaper, which contained not just Mickey Mouse, but the Silly Symphony, but other comic strips. I couldn't read, but I learned to read in, uh, really in, uh, in this paper, uh, along with most kids of my generation. And in fact, for a very long time, the American comics were referred to uh, rather contemptuously as uh, Les Petits Mickey, Little <laughs> Mickey's. <laughs> because that, that struck the, uh, the French uh, imagination so much, you know, yeah. it, it made such an impact. Le Journal de Mickey was really what introduced American comics to France. So what I wanted to say, that to, to come back to Professor Goodworth, I mean, everybody has his own story with the bande dessinée. Mm-hmm. So now let's start with the, with the, with the panel. Uh, I'd love to know from you all to try and, I mean, just to make a good step, Forward, what, how can you define the nature of the Bandesine? What is a Bandesine? How would you dis, how do you say the definition of the Bandesine? Let, let's start with Jerome. Well, I'm, I'm trying to talk about the French Bandesine. Mm-hmm. I mean, because, uh, you know, Bandesine its, by itself simply means comic strip. But in France, I think it means something much more. And I think the real life of the Bandesine started after the upheavals of 1968 where you had a new audience that was young, educated, nihilistic, politically left, real troublemakers. And they needed to find a form. And the form came out in this very strange magazines that proliferated after that. And what was exciting about it is that this new form was very sexy, crazy, and funny. 
sexy? Yes. What do you mean? With a, with a strange and wondrous art. And I think that when I discovered it in the, in the 80s, it was like finding a lost child. I'd come to Paris, I was interviewed by someone. The interview appeared in a magazine called Asui, which means to be continued. And I looked through this and I said, this is the story of my own life. Why had, why had I not been able to participate in this kind of art? Because it was very serious, it was very powerful, and it was comic books or comic strips for adults. Uh, it didn't have the kind of violent Batman image. It had something that was uh, much more profound, much more interesting. So in other terms, what is Bandesini, Bandesini? How do you define it to a little kid? I would define it as, as comic books for adults with, in a very particular form. I would say that it, you know, uh, it has its own kind of crazy music, it's, it's, it's very funny, and it's, it's for a very sophisticated, literate audience, it would seem. Okay, Art? Okay, well that was question number five, Jerome. Okay, essentially, bande dessinée just means drawn strip, uh -huh. and the English equivalent, I suppose, is comics, and the definition, as far as I understand it, is it's a combination of words and pictures that tell a story, uh, and part of the definition should be, I suppose, that it's for reproduction, that that's an important part of what comics are. They're uh, a kind of mass medium, even if in some cases it's a very small mass, like Comics can come out in print runs of a few hundred even. But the fact that it's made to be reproduced is, has implications that affect the kind of work that's made. Um, I kind of have problems with the word comics because yeah. people expect it to be funny. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's the French kind of neutralize that by calling it a drawn strip. It, it just goes back to it being drawings. Um, so what I've taken to doing is misspelling comics every chance I get so that if you spell it C-O-M-I-X, then it's comics. And then it's just mixing together words and pictures, and it's just a mispronunciation rather than a misnomer. <laughs> and that seemed like helpful in terms of understanding this. Also, another aspect of all this that I found interesting uh, when you're talking about uh, Jack Rustal's uh, thinking of himself as an architect is when I'm kind of hovering around the definition, part of it also is that these uh, words and pictures combine to tell a story. And I would like to think that story also implies like stories of a building, that there's a kind of architecture to the way these pictures yeah. are put together. Sure, yeah. sure the page the, you mean even. The, yeah, it's kind of, well, you know, the, word, the original word story comes from um, medieval Latin historias, which is uh, basically refers to the picture windows. In mm -hmm. the That's churches, interesting. See? So it's very close to talk about mm -hmm. stories and talk about comics as some, some kind of implicit connection even. Maybe. Good. Mm -hmm. uh, Historiated facade, as it used to be known in the uh, jargon of art history, was a uh, typically a Romanesque or Gothic facade with bands giving biblical or mythological narratives along the, the, um, the surface. Uh, and of course, it's the remote ancestor of the comic strip, but the, and 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 in uh, uh, and it also uh, sometimes involves words or at any rate inscriptions. Um, and its ancestry can certainly be traced back to you know the ancestry of the bond dessinée can certainly traced back to that, uh, among other sources. But um, I don't think I can improve upon what Art said. I mean, a comic strip, a bon dessiné, uh, is, um, which I prefer in a way because to comic strips simply because of the assumption built into the, the American word that uh, the thing has to, be, has to give you yaks, which it needn't necessarily do. But a comic strip or a bon dessiné is a narrative done in pictures and in words in which the 
the narrative system of the, of the, of the pictures and the words, uh, the narrative systems are indissoluble from one another. They work together. Uh, they play off one another, and also there is, as I've said, an indispensable component of the mise en page, the way that the thing looks on the page, the, uh, the, the montage of the images, which gives you a further kind of level of propulsion of the narrative uh, from the, uh, the separated out dialogue and images. Mm -hmm. um, you can't, uh, the point about comic strips is that you can't dissociate the words and the pictures. And, um, uh, and so consequently this puts a particular load on the way in which the thing is conceived and a particular kind of imagination. Into, into, yeah, okay. So, um, how, now I'd like to understand from you, how is it French Band Disney has been influenced by the American comics? Can you t talk about that, uh, Maurice, for a minute? Uh, yes. Uh, <coughs> American comics came to France very early. In the early 1900s, Hachette published Little Nemo, Mm -hmm. who are the, the books of Little Nemo, Happy Hooligan, Cats and Jammer Kids. And it was for children, as it was Which in, was in the United States. Uh, I would say the earliest, probably 1905, 1906, before mm -hmm. the First World War. Mm -hmm. After the First World War, immediately after, there was few American comic strips that were reproduced in newspapers. Uh, but it's only uh, when uh, Paul Winkler or mm -hmm. Winkler or Paul Winkler from Budapest come and establish Opera Mondi, which was the first really European syndicate, that American comic strip really invaded first the uh, French newspaper. And uh, then uh, Winkler uh, conceived the idea, because he wasn't selling that many, uh, there wasn't that many newspapers to sell to, to have uh, those comics, dailies as well as Sunday, for children. They have a children's newspaper, and the first one was the Journal de Mickey in 1934. And this opened the floodgates. Every kid in school read the comics. They were a lot jazzier than the story that took place in, uh, in, uh, in France, like Les Pieds-Niclés, or even Tintin, which was Belgian, or uh, Zigepus. Uh, they told very good stories, science fiction, like. Uh, Flash Gordon, Adventure, Jungle Jim, um, Western story like Red Rider, and uh, really the French kids uh, lapped it up, so uh, it was very well known. After, of course, during the Second World War, they were banned. And because they were banned, it created a nostalgia by the for Germans, them you mean? by the German and, and the Vichy. And what the was the reason? People. Well, they were American. Were there any Nazi <laughs> comic strips? There were a few in France. There was a journal called Le Temeraire, which uh, propagated the, the Nazi ideology yeah. which in 43-44. And then after the war, you know, uh, there was the law of 1949, July 49, that uh, reduced the, uh, you know, the number of, uh, of American comics that could be published in France because they had taken the lion's share of, uh, of the public. And that's actually what gives rise to the French bande dessinée because uh, a lot of cartoonists really uh, worked their skills, you know, on the new because they had, they had papers to work for. And uh, in the 60s, there was a comeback. And this, uh, maybe I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, but it, it was the uh, at same time in the early 60s in the United States, France and Italy, there was a movement from older children who have grown up on the comics uh -huh, and they've uh -huh. been told the comics will lead them 
to the guillotine, they will become juvenile delinquents and they'll never make a living. And uh, <laughs> they decided to rehabilitate the, the comic strip. And uh, that's how the Club des Bandes Dessinées, later Centre d'études de littérature d'expression graphique, Seleg, was born. And it turned out some of the people were Alain René, Alain Rob Grillet, uh, sociologist Edgar Morin, Evelyn Sulreau, Pierre Lazareff of Francois. And that's where I came o in. Opinion also. leaders. Sorry. Opinion leaders, you know, and uh, René, for instance, wrote that. And uh, all of us, and, and they rehabilitated the, mostly American comics, because that's the comics that we had read as children, and most of us had stopped reading comics. And uh, it led eventually to many things, convention, uh, conferences, the exhibition at the Louvre. And before May 68, I think this movement has prepared the public to accept what the new cartoonists mm -hmm. were going to say, mm -hmm. because it, it told the French that the comics were a serious art form. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So now I'd like to know from, from Lustal, what do you think the bande dessinée, why do you think it's taken hold in France? Why is France the center of the bande dessinée now? Also in England and well, Spain now. and Italy, but France is the main country. Why is it so? Well, I think uh, a lot of things comes from Belgium, in fact, mm -hmm. because uh, as Maurice told, um, well, when in the '49 there was no no more uh, U.S. comics in uh, in Europe and France, there was the, um, a lot of new characters from uh, Belgian drawer drawer um, through Western uh, detective stories mm -hmm. uh, like Jerry Spring, uh, Bug Danny. All this was um, was made by Belgian cartoonists, and uh, they were supported by two main magazine in Belgium was called Spiro and mm -hmm. Tintin uh -huh. and they were a really big success with this magazine and a lot of things in, uh, in modern comics comes from these two magazines they were two schools, two different schools, two uh -huh. graphical schools different and um, but the best well thing the French got from Belgium right? yeah I think uh, uh, after, well, around, uh, around it's a, 60... It's a very bad French joke. Uh, yeah, in the, yeah, yeah. The, uh, Belgium. No, but in the, the 50s, the, the yeah. Most, the most known uh, magazine in France in the 50s were Tintin and Spiro, where they were Belgian magazine. And after there was Pilote, uh, who was uh, uh, an, a French editor made it, and it, it was a very big success because there was a lot of uh, talented cartoonists inside. It was uh, really a kind of... Uh, during five years uh, it was a miracle to, to see so many good uh, drawer cartoonists in the same time in the same magazine mm -hmm. when in 68 the magazine split and uh, each each cartoonist made his own magazine so this is proliferation of magazine and uh, well I think it was a much more open field for Bambesine than uh, in the uh, in United States at this time where there were stayed on uh, superhero stories and all that. Uh -huh. Don't you think there's a tradition in French which could explain that? Why has French, you know, taken the center of the Bundesliga? Don't you think it's a combination of something with a French tradition? Mm. Go ahead. I mean, no, no, no. Anybody who wants uh, to say. Well, uh, I mean, one thing that comes to mind is... Uh, the French caricature magazines yes, from exactly. before the beginning of the century, like La Siete Burr, yes. uh, where it was not uncommon for people doing cartoons to also be making paintings. That, uh -huh. that kind of very shrill distinction exactly. between high and low that even became the subject of that MoMA 
uh, where it wasn't un unusual to see a cartoonist be a painter. So you'd have uh, Steinland, who is known as a poster artist, and Toulouse-Lautrec working in La Ciudad You'd have Kupka and Juan Gris. Uh, Picasso, actually, in Spain still was working on, on cartoons. And there was a less rigid line between the two than existed in the equivalent situation of cartoon and caricature magazines in America for the most part. And as a result, the, the uh, polarization wasn't as great. And maybe it was easier to, to build a, a middle-class audience mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. in the more I recent agree. past. I agree with you. Yeah. I think it's the, the, the Voltairian culture from, you know, from, from Voltaire and what we call in French la culture voltairienne de la dérision, which is a very strong French tradition. You know, yes, and there is practically no tradition of satire, I mean, with, the, with certain signal exceptions like Mark Twain. Yes. There is virtually no tradition of real satire in American letters which corresponds to the French tradition of the same. American artists on the whole have not liked to take a, have not liked to take a derisory view of the mm -hmm. society around them, again with exceptions. But, on the, but it is not built so much into the core of aesthetic activity in this country uh, as irony and satire are into the core of all kinds of discoursing uh, in France traditionally. And uh, that has something to do with it. And also it has to do, I think, with the magnification uh, that you get when you look at a distant phenomenon, mm -hmm. the French looking across the Atlantic and seeing uh, what happened there in the popular arts, frequently the foreigner will be much more likely to, the, the non-American will be much more likely to pick up upon uh, certain vitalities in American culture which, uh, to which um, uh, Americans might not themselves be so receptive, mm -hmm. even though they might, you know, they, their products might be popular. I think this has a lot to do with it. There is a capacity for uh, sort of picking things at a distance with perhaps a clearer view or at any rate with a different view. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. And what is the other side? The other side of the coin, Bob. What is it? What is the reason why in the U.S., except for from you know for Mouse, um, the graphic novel has not moved to the center of the culture? Um, the it's always the comic strip. You could say has been at the center. You know, sort of at the unacknowledged center of the culture for quite a long time. The graphic novel is a particular subform of what the Americans would regard as the comic strip. Um, the, uh, and uh, it is relatively embryonic, I think we'd all agree, in, uh, or at any rate up to the 1960s, let's say, up to the emergence of uh, Bob Crumb and Art Spiegelman and a few others in the 60s, 70s, 80s. The idea of a graphic novel as distinct from a comic strip um, or a comic album was a fairly embryonic form. Um, it, um, uh, you see, I think it's been hampered here by uh, a number of factors. First of all, there was a very strong censorious pressure directed against comic strips in the 19, you know, as late as the, uh, as the, I think as the early 1960s, culminating in the work of a guy, can I, what is this man's name, Wertenbaker? Wertheim? Wertheim. Wertheim. He wrote a book in 19, was it 54, called The Seduction of the Innocent, in which he uh, he was, like all bringers of ill tidings to this culture, you know, full of um, uh, qualifications as a social psychiatrist. And he, um, 
he believed he was not a fundamentalist Christian, but he might as you know he might as well have been one. He uh, he believed that the comic strip was having this literally satanic and debasing effect upon American youth. That uh, you know it was turning uh, the American young of the 19, of the late 1950s into a generation of axe murderers and rapists. And uh, the the uh, he was a curiously prophetic figure in some respects because this is something that's often been said about television since. Um, but anyway. He did have a great deal of influence uh, among bien pensant Americans, and I think this is one of the reasons for, you know, for a sudden uh, clampdown of censorious attitudes about comics. The, 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 uh, and it's one of the reasons why American comics suddenly became rather more bland than they had been before, a situation which was only uh, changed in the 60s, again, with the emergence of Zap Comics and uh, the... the, the uh, uh, and the underground comics that we saw after 1965. Um, now, uh, because the comic, you know, the American bon dessinée was therefore uh, forbidden all sorts of areas of human experience, primarily the sexual uh, and also the political, it meant that you couldn't do a very effective novel in it if you were going to um, rule out whole tracts of human experience in this way. Whereas although France was certainly never immune to censorship and never immune to all manner of uh, pressures upon political, uh, you know, upon... Never. Uh, never. Uh, nevertheless, uh, the comic strip was able to flourish in the cracks, as it were, of uh, French discourse precisely because it was seen as marginal, whereas in America it tended to be censored because it was seen as more central. I mean, this is the peculiar paradox of the situation. Bart, do you have something to add to that? Well, let's see. First of all, the word graphic novel is a very recent... Coinage, and it indicates some of the problems that comics have and some of the ones they're trying to overcome. It's such a genteel word, mm. you know? Like graphics are respectable, novels are respectable, so if you put, put them together, together, you get doubly respectable work. Um, and it's a way of trying to like avoid some of the, uh, the problems that the medium has had, which come which came to a real head in the 50s, as Robert said, with... Uh, with people think it was a fact strip, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and um, on the other hand, it's a problem because... Part of what's strong in comics is the fact that they do manage to fly, at least in America, they've managed to fly below radar. They're not, they're not given a certain kind of critical uh, attention, and that's allowed them a certain kind of liberty and freedom every once in a while to break through and do something very exciting, Mad Comics being one example in the 50s, uh, the underground comics being another example, and the underground comics being the moment of change, really, because here you had, for the first time, a generation that grew up with that moment of suppression, seeing the comics from before and after work in this book and wanting to, to revitalize that medium and work with it again. Mm -hmm. And you had people who, uh, for the first time in the history of comics, I think, were overtly doing comics without thought of financial gain. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a career. It was something that people, it was a vocabulary people developed and worked with, speaking to their peers rather than downward to kids. But also outward. syndication was not involved, at least initially, was it? No, and this was uh, part of the underground press. Yeah. It was part of the, the 60s, very much like what Jerry was saying about what was happening in Europe. And as a result, you had people making comics for peers because they like to make comics, the same mm -hmm. way somebody might write a novel for a peer because they like to do novels mm -hmm. or make paintings the same way. Um, the other thing that happened was this underground comics burst that happened in the 60s changed what happened in French comics. Mm -hmm. sure. It's really, it was the model for making a new kind of adult comic there. 
and the difference, the reason that it, it stuck more over there, because the cartoonists doing the bande dessinée in France were already established cartoonists doing work for children who then made the switch after seeing American Absolutely. underground comics to do comics for adults. In America, it was just ex-kids doing comics for ex-kids. Mm -hmm. And it, so it didn't, have, it didn't have that kind of uh, structure and base in an economic reality that it had in France. And it also didn't have the distribution that it had in France where uh, distribution rules allowed these magazines almost automatic distribution uh, in France, whereas here it was all distributed kind of with bong pipes and stuff, sure, you know, sure. something else again. <laughs> it's something which leads me to a question to Jerry. Uh, Jerry, is it, is one of the, why did you start writing bande dessinée for French audience? Is it because you can write about sex in France and you don't, you can, you can avoid the, the rage of the Christian fundamentalists from the U.S. or something? Absolutely. No, I, I, I started writing there because it seemed to me there were, there were certain possibilities of, of extending the form in, in narrative that you really couldn't, be, couldn't do here, or I didn't find a way of doing it here. My, art might tell you that, that it is possible, but for me it was not. I wanted to do novels in pictorial form, and there was already a tradition here that, oddly enough, came from the United States. So it's curious that that which began here find, found a kind of final acceptance in France, which allowed me to take this form and replay it that I, I had begun at the age of three, and it, you know, and 40 years later was be, was able to find a medium that would uh, that that would apply to the particular music in my head. So it's a, it's it's very ironic and very curious at the same time. I don't know how to explain it. Do you, know, do you think that the element of romance, which you can put in the French bande dessinée, yes. doesn't exist in the American novel? It exists in, in, in the novel to some degree, but it, but it would not exist in, in the graphic novel. What, what I found extraordinary in, in the French graphic novel is that you, you didn't have talking heads, you had kissing faces. <laughs> and that made, that made all the difference. And it was very both erotic and romantic at the same time. Yes, you could use genitals, but that wasn't really uh, the thing that, that, that moved me. It, it was the kind of adult romance in picture form that led me to, to, to working in, in this medium. Uh, Lustal, tell me, what do you think, what can an artist say in a graphic novel that he cannot express um, in traditional painting? <laughs> Uh, well, like Art said in the beginning, uh, when you do uh, a cartoon, uh, you have to take care of the, of the reproduction. So it, there is a limitation of the graphical code, and uh, you have to use the same code for, uh, for, from the beginning of the story to another one, to, to, the, to the end of the story, so it's about uh, one or two years. So you are obliged to, to draw always the same way, the same, um, the same aspect, and with, uh, with kind of medium that uh, are good for reproduction, you know, and with a lot of uh, lisibility. Readability. Readability. Legibility. Readability. No, readability. So readability. 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 It's different from legibility. Readability, that's what I wanted to say. And so, um, in the cartoon, like this, and the cartoon work, but it's a part of the game. You have to, to be, uh, to find something, uh, uh, a pure. Okay, no. It's sketch. 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 Yeah, it's sketch, but very, 
the sketch has to be more minimal. more more minimal. Mm -hmm. The sketch has finally finally rough, to rough to be uh, to be a writing, like an alphabet, in fact, like mm -hmm. a, a graphical code. Mm -hmm. And it's quite long to find this to find your way of drawing. And um, uh, well, that's that's what I see. Well, I, I really need to do something else after. That's. Have yeah, I have to switch. Yeah, I have to switch. Yeah, but the drawing for cartoon is a, 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 a tool to tell story. Mm -hmm. you know, and you, uh, what you can do in graphic novel and uh, not in painting, is uh, to uh, to work on the association of picture and the association of words and picture. And uh, you have to think uh, uh, the relation with the cinema, with the, the storyboard, mm -hmm. yeah. the the light, the, the motion uh, of the, the motion of the characters inside the the frame. You know, all of this uh, for me is uh, is near the language of cinema, mm -hmm. and that's what interests me. That's why I still do it, even if sometimes it's quite uh, harassing. Mm -hmm. But. Uh, because painting, you know, it's different. You have so f so much freedom. You, know, it's another another frame of mind. Yeah. But um, on the matter of the similarities and differences between, you know, comics uh, between bande dessinée and uh, uh, and, uh, uh, and, pa and pa painted gallery images, I mean, it's a, it's a peculiar relationship actually, because we know that you know for years and years and years, uh, painters have been drawing upon. Uh, comic strips um, and ditto as a matter of fact uh, uh, von Dessinay artists have also been drawing upon the convention not only yeah. the conventions but a great deal of the particular kind you know sort of framing conventions quotations from paintings quotations from well-known poses etc etc I mean any uh, von Dessinay artist is a visually literate person to his or her fingertips and is therefore going to uh, introduce all sorts of subliminal quotes of this kind but the big difference is that the comic strip is inherently the home of narration, just as the movies are inherently the home of narration. And what the, quote, fine arts, unquote, uh, have uh, taken from the Van Dessinée has not been the narration, but rather a kind of dissociative image. Um, it's taken... It's tr they've tended to treat, uh, you know, as in pop art... Uh, figures in uh, uh, comic strips as stills, as icons, as, uh, 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 you know, without, and in fact they're completely stripped of any of their narrative character. And the, the um, now, uh, I was talking a little earlier to, before we started to Art Spiegelman who made the, you know, absolutely true point that, you know, during the great abstract hegemony of American art in the 1960s, 1970s, uh, the um, the bande dessinée well, became a sort of ghetto for those artists who wanted right. who were still well no 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 I mean the actual the, the actual drawing of real comics no, uh, the, the, the um, uh, not sort of doing quotes from them um, but you know doing the things themselves this became a sort of ghetto for disaffected artists who were still passionately in love with the idea of the human figure and of its narrative possibilities yeah. and yet nevertheless who didn't have a chance of creating or, or having any kind of narrative painting per se taken seriously. Yeah. And uh, the, the, um, 
this is one of the things, incidentally, which in my mind forces, you know, sort of must invariably, inevitably force some kind of uh, recomparison of the supposed achievements with pop art with the actual achievements of the uh, the comic strip and the bande dessinée. Um, the, 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 but this is the big difference. It's a difference of narrative, and it's a difference uh, which you know is almost now exclusive um, to their respective media. One being narrative and the other one being non-narrative. In my opinion, the ironies of the comic strip are infinitely more interesting than the kind of, you know, sub-fussed, filtered, mannerized ironies that you get in, uh, uh, you know, in, you know, in, in late modern in, in late modernist painting. But that's another story. Yes, Maurice, you want to add something? Uh, yes, um, I uh, find it. Uh, it's. Uh, I agree with the part what you said so far, but I find it. Uh, rather restricting that when we talk of comics and modern art, we always talk about pop art and Liechtenstein and how they use the artifacts of comics. When, in fact, the spirit of the comics, and I try to infuse that to your friend Kirk Varnado, who didn't understand, has infused (laughs) the uh, uh, modern painting. Let's take, for instance, Marcel Duchamp, which is regarded as the the ushering of a uh, new descending staircase. Duchamp had been a cartoonist and a successful mm. cartoonist for La Vie Française. And uh, this was known to an illustrator. A.B. Frost made, uh, made all his career, you know, showing uh, people on a frame, you know, a skater on a frame falling on the ice all in the same frame. C.D. Gibson, Charles Dana Gibson, yes, Charles used Dana Gibson did that, yes. Uh, did the guy that. between the two girls. And in fact, yeah. uh, Picasso, who admired uh, the <coughs> comics. Very much. He had them uh, read to him by uh, Gertrude Stein, especially mm. the Cassandra Marquis. Mm. They loved them. And there was in France, in all the, the milieu of modern painting and cinema, René Clair, there was a great admiration of the comics and what they were attempting to say, often despite the knowledge of the artist, yes. which a new iconic way of telling a narration. And uh, the Cubist, and especially Jean Miro, who also had been, uh, had been a cartoonist, and Clay took the spirit of the cartoon to tell a story in, in their paintings, you know, in the spirit, not narratively, but conceptually, and they took some of the techniques of the comic. Could I, could I ask you, since uh, the, 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 I actually have always wanted to ask somebody who, know, who is as much of an expert on this subject as you, is it or is it not true that Miro was very influenced by Crazy Cat? Yes, among in, other things. Yeah, yeah, it was inf- influenced by the, the comics in general. Yeah, as was particularly by Crazy Cat. Particularly and by those, Crazy those flat desert landscapes with the moon That's and the ladders. In, and the, the, yeah. That's yeah. Also, when we talk about modern art and, uh, and the comics, we, we should mention the case of uh, Lionel Feininger, who Absolutely. had been an, an extraordinary yeah. cartoonist. Yes. And in yes. fact, a great cartoonist. Uh, at the time of his death and his autobiography, he said some of the things I'm proudest of is uh, the Kinder Kid. Yep. which he created at the mm-hmm. comics. So there is a much more intimate relationship between the comics and modern art than is told in the United States. You know, in France, we know that René Claire wrote about that, Félix Brion wrote about that. You know. And here, you know, the difference, one of the differences, I think, why the comics have never been taken so seriously in this country, is that, aside from Gilbert Seldes, there has never been any heavyweight thinker who has defended the comic and made a case for the comic. And also because the, there has always been this... Uh, I'm sorry. I'll be, uh, I mean, this one. We yeah, Maybe he'll do it now. One, yeah. of the, one of the things that is involved uh, in this is the, uh, 
that, that sort of, I mean, it now, it now seems somewhat archaeological, but it was a real fear that if you were seen quoting from, the, if you were a painter and was, or a sculptor and were seen quoting from these sources, that this would diminish your claim upon a museum culture. Uh, that people would not take you seriously in America. The same prejudice for reasons that art and others have mentioned did not hold true in France, where there was a much, you know, or in Germany or in Switzerland or, you know, in a lot of other places. But in America in particular, where modernism had to try and assert its claims to respectability against, you know, a sort of, you know, a, a, you know, a, a pretty general kind of reluctance and opposition in its early years, you know, um, the, the, uh, there was this passionate desire to cleanse it of associations with the vulgar, the, uh, the, 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 you know, the common, the trashy, etc., everything that people imagined comics represented. And this certainly went through right up to the days of Clem Greenberg, and I think probably beyond, too. Could I add two uh, things? With uh, more than I, 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 I forgot to mention <laughs> the surrealists were very much influenced by, by the yeah. comics and fascinated yeah. by the comics, mm. Dali and the other, yeah. and Miro. And the uh, second point I want to, uh, you you asking me whether Miro was uh, an admirer of Cricket, he was also an admirer of Tintin. And ah, the foundation yeah. Miro, the foundation Miro, the first exhibition that they did was on Tintin. Mm. Tintin in 1982, mm. I think. Yeah. And what were the, the cartoons by Duchamp like? They were pretty, uh, I've seen some, they were pretty realistic in the time of the turn of the century, a pen and nail, gouache, gouache, uh, yeah. wash, you know, the mm. well-drawn, you know, yeah. nothing but special. But they like Juan Gris, uh, Boulevardier. Oh, well, well, Juan Gris, uh, yeah. well, Picasso, he never yeah. did cartoons, but he did uh, illustrations that yeah. were very close to yeah. cartooning. Does any of you have any idea why the American publishers have not tried to push to respond to the possibilities of the form? Do you know why, you know, the... Well, they the have. I mean, they've tried. Yes, and what's so happened? What, uh, so far, with, with mixed success, um, now certainly was successful. Penguin's publishing Raw now, which is a gathering of American and European mm -hmm. uh, comics artists. There have been uh, books like The Watchmen that came out in bookstores yes, for sure. some the economic Watchmen. success. Yes. Uh, I would say that one problem is the prejudice still exists, that one that Wortham put ah. in place, that comics aren't, uh, are, are pernicious. Maybe he's right, but in any case, that's kept it from working in the bookstore world. Another thing is, is that... Is it pornographic? Did you well, talk to Jesse Helms about it? Uh, <laughs> well, I think the fact that they, they... There is something about comics that connects directly to the id. And I think that that keeps raising, at least in America, keeps raising problems. Mm -hmm. Like even now in the comics shops, there's another move one more time towards sex comics, you know? And I think that there is something intrinsically dangerous in comics that, I, that draws me to the medium. Um, for one thing, I think the fact that we're talking about very simplified pictures, very stripped down pictures, very stripped down words that uh, function probably the way the human brain functions. You know, you, you kind of think in terms of these caricatural stripped down pictures yeah. and in, in several word burst associations and as a result it has a very direct pipeline into the brain and I think yes that creates a problem the fact that comics are dangerous and in some way are actually recognized as dangerous by the genteel culture but that's I, a part of it I know I get off much more on comic book sex than I do on, uh, <laughs> on photographs <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I mean <laughs> photographic pornography is terribly limiting to the imagination in the way in which comic book sex is not I mean now, another thing yeah, you are there <laughs> Another thing that happened here, though, is that since so much of comics have to do with, in America, comic books became the domain, for one reason and another, of a certain kind of pre-adolescent fantasy, mm -hmm. you know, the superhero stuff. Yeah. 
And that's become such a strong um, presence that it actually has limited comics creators, uh, those growing up in America without either access to earlier generations of what was done in comics mm -hmm. or access to the European retranslation of what happened to comics, uh, is stuck with a very impoverished kind of comics, which is just the superhero genre. It's as if all novels were gothic romances. And yes. That was the only kind of novel that existed. Or all operas were about Siegfried. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so here we have uh, an impoverished medium with, with people understanding the medium as being only that subset of superhero. And that affects what people will look for in, in bookshops as well. And then the other side of it is on occasion people think of comics as being humor, and therefore the only place to look for them in a bookstore has been in the humor section. And that also is limited. You know, it means that if I do mouse, I can kind of look forward to finding next to an Irma Bombeck book. You know, yeah. that's uh, as likely a place as anywhere. So, to so find literally it. they don't know how to target an audience. Yeah, like, in fact, one of the problems with each of the things I do is, like, Penguin puts the categories that books are supposed to be filed literature, in. Literature, cartoons. So literature, cartoons, they have to invent that as a category. Yes. Uh, I think Mouse was filed as autobiography slash cartoon. <laughs> uh, and there's no satisfactory answer. You sure. know? So I think the best, like, when I've been luckiest, like, I've always asked for it to be in Sui Generis, you know, like, mm -hmm. that, uh, that that would be the right category. And the best I can hope for is new releases. That's all. Sweet, one of a kind. Um, but anyway, um, I think that the reason it hasn't quite taken off here, though, is that it's still quite. There's still forays outward that haven't quite uh, grabbed hold fully. But something's changing. Something's happened because at this point, you have a generation that's no longer under the radiation effect of Wortham's seduction of the innocent. That's now a generation of editors, of publishers, of critics. And as a result, I, I begin to see kind of a sea change over here. And so what's basically beginning to happen is the way the French comics retranslated the American comics notion after sure. six, the 60s is now coming back here and having an impact. Maybe if you bring back a French writer like Charin into the US, maybe he'll have success. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe he'll he doesn't know the language. <laughs> OK, so um, now wh why don't we st st uh, start and, and talk with, with you a little bit and, and try to know whether you have, I mean, I'm sure they have many, many questions to hear to the panel. Uh, will you please move to the microphone, he microphone here and stand up? Yes, 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 over there. Uh, oh, maybe another one, yes, another one here. Yes, yes. And then just, you know, say your name and so on. And the I don't know if my name is important, but it's Irene. And um, when I came to this country, I'm convinced now that I think of it that uh, comic books helped me learn English. I, I remember even uh, stealing money from my mother's purse so I could buy one because my mother didn't think that was proper literature. But it seemed to me that when I went to get my weekly stash of comic books, there were lots and lots and lots of them. And I, too, remember Frederick Wortham's book, and I'm very confused. It seems to me that there are very few comic books that you can buy, but you can buy Hustler and Penthouse and all the rest of it. So if the society is so repressive, why have they just substituted one kind of latent sexuality for a blatant sexuality, which is it, it's ugly and it's, it's not at all gentle? Um, does anyone... Have a clue? Okay. Well, I'd say one thing is that comics were so strongly associated with children's culture, even though it wasn't true in the early 50s that only kids read comics, um, that 
that kind of brought out the, the, the worst puritanical, most rabid responses, that somehow children were being tainted by this. And what Wortham was responding to specifically was a very uh, excessive kind of comic that became popular. Um, it was mostly what he called prime comics. And in the same comic books, that would have very uh, long analytical sequences showing how to rob a bank and how to uh, murder and pillage uh, with a one-page denouement that said crime doesn't pay, there would, in the same book, be ads for knives and guns. And so that sort of got his radar up and started his crusade, really. And after that point, um, comics were sanitized to the point almost of being obliterated because they had been, indeed, making inroads into being a kind of adult literature or sub-literature before Wortham had come along. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my name is Jules Pfeiffer. Hey. and. Oh. Uh, I come, here. <laughs> I come shockingly to speak in defense of Frederick Wortham. Uh, <laughs> because, Bob and Art, if you think for one moment that comics would have gone in a more adult rather than a more violent direction without Wortham, I think you're mistaken. There was no comics, and I'm old enough to have been around at the birth, comics uh, were uh, the comics that Wortham was objecting to. Uh, were the comics particularly of Gaines and uh, and they had to do with horror stories, Vault of Horror, and they had to do with actually the work that uh, Harvey Kurtzman so brilliantly introduced and why Kurtzman has not been mentioned in terms of his influence on the on Bandersenay, I don't know because one can hardly pick, I mean this is a, a, a parenthetical statement, one can hardly pick up one of those books without seeing uh, a neo-Kurtzman-like layout if not the drawing. I mean his his, his style has influenced virtually every magazine we see published in Europe with serious content. But serious content, uh, other than style, and other than the seriousness of art style, uh, did not make a, an appearance in our work, in comic work, in comic books, sometimes in newspapers, but not in the books, with few exceptions, Will Eisner being one and Kurtzman's work being another. What, what you saw mostly was violence. Uh, you saw nothing about relationships. You saw nothing about sex except, you know, you know the strips were uh, comic book strips and comic strips were essentially sexist and racist and always were and uh, continued to be. Uh, the, um, the work was always juvenile and the work had no, uh, because of the editors and I suppose because of the cartoonists themselves who accepted, if they had a different state of mind, they still accepted censorship and self-censorship. Uh, I don't think they would have gone in a more adult direction. I don't think they would have gone in the French direction. I think that um, Bandesene is to American comics what, what the Nouvelle Vague was to American films, uh, that uh, what the French loved and admired was a form and a style which they brought a much more serious uh, romantic, erotic, and sexual content to. We have, you know, there is, uh, we feel, we are, we are as estranged from sex in this country as we are from real food, and we don't, <laughs> and we don't know we don't know really how to write and draw about it except in the most extreme violent ways so that when we get rid of censorship as we have in films, it goes to not sex except for violent sex. It goes to forms of mass destruction. And I think that without Wortham, the violence would have been stronger but certainly not the adult quality of the work. Uh, Although the books that were censored out were specifically Kurtzman's books. Yes. As part of that game. And that was the closest comics came to adult comics. Well, no, there was... I mean, and, and he also, I, I think he also rather objected to the shadow, didn't he? He objected to Eisner's... Uh, 
The spirit. Yeah, the spirit. Yes, the, yeah. yes. It's. Uh, I mean, what's interesting is one of my favorite quotes from Wortham is uh, in inciting Superman and Batman. He talked about uh, how uh, uh, critics defending this work said that this was uh, uh, work that uh, was of an art form and, and classic children's literature. And then he referred to uh, classics of children's literature that uh, had lasted up to the 1940s in the time of Wortham and said, how can one imagine Superman or Batman lasting that long? Well, of course, Superman and Batman has lasted much longer and will continue to last much longer than most of the citations of Frederick Wortham. Uh, he was wrong about all sorts of things, but to, and, he, and, he, and he was a nut, but to assume that without him, the form would have taken off and become what we like to dream it would be is, uh, is I'm afraid, nonsense. Uh, but I don't think we were making that assumption. Uh, the point was rather that uh, the, the, you know, whatever would have happened to American comics had Wortham not uh, done his number, uh, that the effect of Wortham's um, campaign was to, f to infantilize. Well, uh, I think, but, well, Bob, I think the infantilization was already there. An, an, an interesting giveaway is that right in this audience, which apparently likes comics, uh, when you ask the question, uh, uh, was it uh, Miro, was it influenced by Crazy Cat, what we got in the audience was a snicker. Uh, you know, th there, there, wa there was a real laugh out here as if, you know, this is a, a foolish question or who can imagine, who can dream. Oh, I didn't, I didn't uh, maybe I was so... I assumed that the, the snicker was for the high-low show. I don't think it was a snicker. <laughs> no, I, I, I think the snicker really has to do with the high-low of, of uh, the American audience and its sensibility, which, while loving and liking comics, still feels in his heart that it's a form to be condescended to. There is really that deep ambivalence. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and, I'm, and I was told, to my surprise, by Alain René that the, that ambivalence exists in the French, too, although they you know, don't show it as much, mm -hmm. but that it's, 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 uh, every, it's there. I would like to add something, and it would add both to what I mean, you should stay here because I have one question. Jules Pfeiffer said, he said that uh, one of the reasons that the comics are despised, and we can say they're despised by a great part of certainly of the educated public, is because of the comic book. And it's not just contempt, uh, co uh, content. It's contempt, but not content. Uh, I've written the article on, uh, on the comic books for uh, soon to be published uh, Encyclopedia of American Popular Culture. And I said, in uh, more elegant word, that probably the comic book is one of the crappiest device of popular culture ever devised. It's just crappy, just the form. Even if the content were better, the form. And unfortunately, it remains in the American psyche as the representative of the comics. It's not true. Even what uh, Jules said is incorrect. What Wertham, and especially the Crusade, did, it's not so much what he did to the comic book. I am, uh, for one, if the comic book had disappeared, I think it would have been a good development. It's what they did to the newspaper comics, because the art of the comics was nurtured in the newspaper. All the great names of the great cartoonists, the people who invented the language. From and I talked with Alberto Breccia, who is an Argentine cartoonist, uh, the dean of our, he said that the American invented everything. McKay, Harriman, uh, McManus, uh, uh, McManus, later Caniff, Foster, Raymond, you know, and oh, it went yeah. into it, it went into a direction, you know. Uh, for instance, Maurice, uh, Steve I Canyon I, was very adult. Forgive even me, in his I, relationship, 
I suspect the Cold War had more to do with that kind of censorship on the newspaper strip page than Frederick Wortham. Uh, no, because I talked with the people at the syndicate and they said in the 50, for instance, they cut out all, almost all adventure comics. Uh, Dick Tracy, even Chester Gould had to tone down the violence and thing. And it, the violence was sui generis to Dick Tracy without violence, you know, Dick Tracy. <laughs> and uh, you can imagine it. And it had an emasculating effect on the, on the newspaper comics. And they became very bland. But the golden years of Walt Kelly followed Frederick Wortham. Uh, well, Walt, Walt, they went around it, but uh, Walt Kelly himself said that uh, he invent, uh, if he didn't have Oki Finucky and all the animal characters, he couldn't say what he said. If they were human, they wouldn't let him say what he said. You know? It was a fable. On the guise of a fable, we could say it. Yes, but my argument is the form, I mean, certainly Wortham affected uh, uh, comics and what was done, but the form itself uh, and how it was edited both in newspapers and certainly in the comic books, you know, by DC and, and, and the others, Marvel, uh, was in place, censorious from the beginning, anti-adult. Uh, Kniff was a friend of mine and I asked him when he started Terry and the Pirates if he knew what he was, you know, the, the adult nature of the strip, that he introduced sex and real sexual relationships in, in, into Terry within the first year. I said, did that come by accident because it started out as a kind of kid's adventure like Dickie Dare and, you know, and other work at the time? And he said, no, he always knew he was going to do that. He, thought, he, he had that in mind from the beginning. And I said, well, then how did you, you know, how come you didn't start at the beginning? He said, because I knew I couldn't get away with it. I had to plant it. I had to move very, very slowly. Yeah, but the fact is that he could do it and could get away with it in the 40s. In my book, in uh, the other the Comic, I, I, I show that uh, what he did in Terran Apart and, and Steve Canyon in the 40s was much more progressive, especially from the point of view of sexual relationships. I agree. That's his later work in the 50s, so there, there, there's been an impact. But you know, when you mentioned Walt Kelly, Walt Kelly was beginning to flourish in comic books. Yes, you know, it, it, that's right. There were... I would say that in just about any mass culture, certainly in America, I don't know, I can't speak about the rest of the world, the general tendency is going to be toward the vulgar, toward the more violent, toward the extreme, toward lower common denominators. And yet, within the margins of comic books prior to Wortham, there were the beginning stirrings of something else. When you mentioned Kurtzman, his war comics were really remarkable at the time in that they had, if not a pacifist, at least a humanistic stance and told uh, much more subtle stories than the Sergeant Rock kind of uh, war comics you think of as war comics, and his mad comics really were kind of uh, early postmodernist uh, commentaries, you know. Um, that, and also, I just want to say something about. I want to speak up in defense of crap and vulgarity, also, because a lot of the comics <laughs> that I really like really have no redeeming social values, except they really are what I was kind of referring in uh, ellipsis before. Uh, to this comics as having some kind of direct pipeline to the is. Yeah, crap and art. Well, like for me, Basil Wolverton is an yeah. example. An obscure artist named Booty Rogers, who we republished in Raw, is an example. They're really stupid. Wolverton, <laughs> Wolverton <laughs> at qualities, at qualities, yeah. at formal qualities, however, you know, sure. formal. And, uh, and they, they don't aspire to. I'm glad this is the fun. last area in which it is possible to discuss formal qualities <laughs> in America. <laughs> 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 well, anyway. I'd like to know from Jules Pfeiffer, I mean, just before you leave the microphone, I mean, how, how is your work welcomed in Europe? I know that in England you're doing a cartoon for something for Channel 4, right? 
Is it no, not for Channel 4. My work in England appeared in The Observer for many years, over 20 uh -huh. years. Channel 4 actually did one of my plays. Okay. But, I mean, how is, how is the difference between the, the, the audience and the way uh, people react to your work in, in Europe and in the U.S.? Is it a difference? Or? I really don't know. I can't speak to that. I mean, it's uh, other than the fact that when I... Uh, Invariably, when I get one of my screenplays turned down by the producers, they say it's too European. So it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> On the other hand, I haven't made that much money out of Europe either. So it's uh, uh, I, I, I I don't have the answer to that. Somebody okay. else might. Okay, thank we'll you. Ask somebody else. Okay, Madame. Well, I was thinking about some of the things that uh, were just brought up, and the um, idea that possibly the. Uh, sense of accessibility of the, the story, the message, the inner workings and inner life of the characters in the adult comics and the sense of um, vulnerability of the story that perhaps makes it seem too accessible to be taken as a high art rather and the kind of snobbery that sets in in such an accessible work maybe, maybe talking more about the bande dessinée will make it more exotic to Americans but um, do you think that there's something about the accessibility and the vulnerability of the story and the characters in the story that makes it not uh, so appealing to the general market as a serious adult yeah, phenomenon? I mean, what do you mean by accessibility? Well, well the you know, story it, is very huh? easy to understand. It's very easy to understand. That's right, but it uh, really reaches right out to you. And this way you talk about the id and the. But you have to go beyond that, of course. You have to go to yes. formal quality if there are any of the of the comics. You know, it's, uh, for instance, one of uh, Crazy Cat, for instance. First, it wasn't accessible. It, it was only carried by about forty newspapers, and uh, Erst who published it in his paper, insisted that his newspaper carry Crazy Cat. All the editor would say, nobody reads it. We're getting mail all the time and saying, uh, kick it out. But he personally loved it. And uh, so it wasn't accessible, you know. But uh, it's true that right. most of the story, let's say Flash Gordon and Atal, are very accessible. However, if you look on the level of the formal qualities, and Flash Gordon is regarded as an icon of popular culture, not because of the stories, but because of the substratum, the unconscious level to which it communicates. There's a lot of sexuality in Flash Gordon. Maybe some, most of it probably not even dreamed of by, his, by uh, Alex Raymond, also he was a rather horny man. But, uh, <laughs> he, uh, but that communicates in Tarzan by Foster uh, Hogarth. And I think this is what mostly appealed to people in France this quality that it can be read at different levels. Now, one of the things that always gets my goat is when I'll read a review of a film and they'll say it's real simple-minded, it's like a comic strip. Mm -hmm. and That's exactly I always, what I, mean. I would like to see this all get reversed, so they'll say it's exactly. really complex, like a comic strip, <laughs> like, you know, yeah. which seems intrinsically which, possible. Which a lot of movies are not, alas. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, it seems to me that what's involved in making a comic is, is taking these very simplified uh, units, you know, like what uh, Jacques was talking about uh, with turning the pictures into a kind of sign language, you know? But juxtaposing these simple pictorial signs, short bursts of language, and, and by juxtaposing these simple things, one can create like really complex energies between. Right, the accessibility and, being the most difficult thing to accomplish. Yeah, what was interesting to me really with Mouse, for instance, is that I, I would 
give lectures and find that the audience consisted of 11-year-olds and 70-year-olds. And it made me think that there's something incredibly democratic about the medium. Well, kids and Holocaust survivors. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot in between. I mean, it wasn't yeah, just. I mean, you know, you know, after it's it's the the Tintin magazine Tintin. It was written for the young people from seven to seventy-seven years old. You know mm-hmm. that. It's very famous. Pour les jeunes de 7 à 77 ans. You know. Mm-hmm. So that's well, the whole crowd. When you say that the the uh, presentation was crappy, it's in a way crappy equals democratic almost because it makes it possible to print a lot of it and to distribute mm-hmm. it widely and. Hopefully more. No, I think uh, magazine, comics magazine in Europe were different than U.S. comics. You know, the paper was were different. You didn't want it to throw it right after you read it, like in the uh, United mm. States. But actually, there are some comic books which, you know, are on a level of reproduction and, you know, complexity of reproduction, you know, that exactly the same as art books. I mean, this... this well, that's yeah. not the comic yeah, book. That's right. not the comic book. For instance, you know, it's... A, the, the, you know, that's it's not the comic That's not what we call a comic book. Comic yeah, book. It's 32 pages, you know. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. it's a comic book. Yeah, yeah. No, but I mean, the, the, you know, it has thrown up these highly sophisticated variants on the form because you guys want to push the limits of the, uh, the forms yeah. as far as you can. In fact, in France, you can do books. Uh, you have very big uh, sales on books... Uh, uh, easy comics, but uh, you can do uh, more sophisticated comics books, in, uh, which sell about five thousand copies. Like in Tardy Europe. with. Uh, Tardy is a good sale, but mm-hmm. uh, for example, Fires, you know, it's uh, and uh, it's um, it's difficult in France to be understood by because people uh, when they um, when they begin to read a comic when they are not used when they stay on Tintin, Asterix, and all this they want to 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 get something very easy to understand. And uh, it's, a, it's difficult, it's a, a culture of picture that they have to, to know. Mm-hmm. And uh, now, now more and more the people try to make the effort to understand a complex comic book. Mm-hmm. But uh, about 10 years ago, uh, uh, the people, they really didn't understand. And uh, that's... Uh, uh, Bob, this is not. This is a book of comics. It's not a comic book. Comic books has taken a connotation. It means thirty-two pages, staple uh, You know, lousy yeah. color, crappy presentation. Yeah. Mainstream yeah. comic book. This is a book oh. of comics. Mm-hmm. Yes, and uh, one of the reason it's more accepted in France than here is that there have been people, as I said, who have sensibilized at least part of the French reading public how to read a comic. Yeah. A comic strip, how to read a book of comics. There are several ways of doing it. And here, you know, there are very few. Yeah, but also you have a lot of sophistication in French comics. Yeah, but it came, it came later. Yeah, it came later. Yeah. See, one of the things that I think is interesting and which we perhaps haven't gone into sufficiently far, and I'd particularly like to get your, your views on this, Lustal, and yours, Horn, is the symbiosis between uh, comic books and the movies. Um, there is a, uh, it's a huge subject which we can only very briefly broach, but uh, the, 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 yeah, I mean, one of the typical things about the, the sort of average newspaper comic strip is that it, uh, it used to be, at any rate, told in a fairly simple kind of pictorial vocabulary, you know, the, the, the generally sort of fairly freeze-like, not a great deal of alteration of camera angle, not a great deal of alteration of view. You know, you would zoom in and zoom out, as it were, so you'd have close-ups and, uh, the, and, 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 uh, and long shots. But at a certain point, this begins to change. You have it, you, you know, you suddenly... Uh, now, I don't doubt that it predates the 60s, and this is something that uh, 
you should speak to, but I, I, the, the, uh, you know, those extraordinary changes of camera angle, those sudden vertiginous perspectives, the very rapid alteration between uh, uh, very uh, heavily, very heavy tonal structures and claustrophobic effects and open light effects and, and you know, and so on and so forth. All this seems to be, uh, in some way, a bleed-in from, uh, from uh, movie photography and from the language of camera angle. Um, when did this really hit the comic? 1836. 1836. <laughs> Before the cinema. <laughs> what, with Grandville? Uh, well, I would say more Rudolf Topfer. Topfer. You know, like with, with very complex cross-cutting, a uh, good uh, 75 years before Griffith ever yes. was able to do such a thing. Yeah. And also very, uh, him and uh, Christophe in France a generation later, uh, you had very complex uh, things that now one associates with camera angle. Yes. And with really predates uh, that kind of sophistication for cameras. Uh, and in, in a way, that's something, it's an interesting subject to me. It's one I don't fully understand, but I know that comics were developing a certain way, or proto-comics, going back to Christophe and Topfer in the 19th century. And a lot of the, the steam, the rug got pulled out from under it with the development of cinema. Mm -hmm. Because maybe cinema delivered a certain kind of visual narrative more efficiently mm -hmm. than comics mm -hmm. on one level, or, or more efficiently is probably the opposite mm -hmm. of what I mean, but more effectively. Jérôme, you have something to say on that? Well, I mean, it's so big. You're writing for the cinema as well as for the bandy cinema. Yes, but we also have to talk about the novel and, and the picture that's inside the word. And I think it basically comes from the word. The image within the word is not even the, the movement from, from word to image. It's the, it's the very nature of the word itself that has the picture embedded in it. So that the bandy almost seems like a magical form that takes the word and, and, and does something, turns it into a kind of crazy flower. And that's one of the reasons why I love to work with Lustal, is that I, I write something and suddenly it comes back in this crazy story, which is, mar which is magical. I think there's an element of magic that we have to come to terms with. Um, well, I'm kind of interested in where comics and film are different rather than where they are the same. Mm -hmm. Because you can talk, I mean, to talk about, you use the language of close-ups and cuts and zooms sure. or whatever. And well, that's just a shorthand. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's also the language that's used by yeah. the comic scriptwriter himself. Sure. And yet, uh, comics aren't really just storyboards for films. They really mm -hmm. have their own aesthetics and their own properties. Mm -hmm. And one of the central things for me is the fact that, uh, for one thing, it's such a personal medium. Like comics are, can be made by one person, sometimes in collaboration. And they have a kind of intimacy mm -hmm. that way that's lost to film that almost by definition mm -hmm. is kind of like building a pyramid rather than putting up a tent. Also, you can go back to the image in a comic book, which you can't. You can go back to a previous right, like image, you can't Right, like having a, a, a videotape uh, freeze frame yes. at your disposal all the time. The fact that the whole picture is taking place, the whole story is simultaneous. Yeah. That's part of what We have does. three more questions. Madame, uh, I'd like to talk about a category I don't really, I hope you'll place for me. Uh, I can only call it sort of hardcover mm -hmm. comics. Um, I, I was brought up on Bécassine. Oh. Now, uh, oh, I see heads going up and down. Uh, this is the 20s. I learned how to hate the Germans through Bekassin because every bad character, spy, thief, uh, whatever, was a German. And I was all ready for Hitler. When he came, he seemed much less bad than the Bekassins. Then uh, my grandchildren brought up in Paris, of course, had Asterix. That was a big, big thing in their lives. It's how they learned French history. They did not learn it in the classroom. They learned it through Asterix. And then back here, we had Baba. Mm -hmm. 
uh, and I'm trying to figure out now uh, my, uh, oh, now this is a third, gen fourth generation, grandnephews come down from Canada with filthy comics. They're not hardcover, they're very soft cover. Uh, and they're as dirty as anything I have ever seen. So uh, this, this is the kind of indoctrination I've gotten from the hardcover, serious, educational, right on, to uh, the sort of thing that a 20-year-old will show his 70-year-old grandmother or great-great-aunt as something she really ought to know about. Uh, I'd rather, I think, you commented on the first part, the hardcover part, and where does it belong in your view of comics? Yes, uh, this illustrates the difference of the path, the formal path, uh, just the content, the package between France and Europe in general and in the United States. Uh, comics came out in hardcover, also in softcover in France, but they did come out in hardcover and softcover uh, soft in this country. They were usually anthology of newspapers on their pages, Cats and Jammer Kids, a Little Nemo, uh, Dreams of a Rabbit Fiend, uh, Bringing Up Father, etc. And the, the albums, as they were called, were actually the forerunner of the graphic novel, because the graphic novel took uh, took the concept of the album and uh, brought it upscale. In the United States, you had the, the contrary uh, phenomenon. You know, uh, these books that were selling for quite a bit of money. You know, and couple of couples and Leon were doing them in the twenties and thirties were replaced by the comic books. It went down. The medium went down, and this illustrates uh, again. So uh, because they were cheap meant for kids, you know, uh, can spend a dime on it. And uh, because the packaging was cheap, the medium became cheap. And because the packaging was more expensive, and we have to talk about packaging, the medium became more upscale in Europe. And is, this is one of the reasons that people had more respect for Bico, even American comics in French covers, like Bico, which was Winnie Winkle, or Mickey Mouse, or Felix the Cat, were more respected in France because they came in, in hardcover, published by Hachette, the biggest publishing house in sure. Paris. So they were more respectable. They were more respectable. There was a question about the difference between drawing and painting and a larger discussion about the connections between the painting and the artwork of the comic. But I've heard, not just here, but in general, less talk about the writing of comics and connections between the comics and say a novel or, or some form of written art, some written art form as opposed to a visual art form. I'd just be curious if what the panel would have to say about the connection between comics and written um, art forms. Um, well, I, one, thing has, one thing that I mentioned before is the efficiency required of a comic. Um, Another thing that I've been finding, for instance, in, the, in this long struggle to do Mouse, which is more appropriately called a graphic novel than some of the other things that are called it, in that novel was part of the structural model that was present for me, is that certain kinds of information lend themselves to being told in comics, and certain kinds of information are really resistant. Uh, so if you have somebody chasing somebody else, it's great. No matter what the words are, you've got something to draw. Mm -hmm. you know? And it's kind of horizontal information. You know, running here, running there, running. And yet, vertical information, as I was thinking of it, like what did people eat in Auschwitz? 
I found very difficult to find a graphic way to represent because, because you have to get the word count down so far if you're not going to have a comic strip panel that's five inches of text and two inches of picture, uh, you have another problem of how to make a graphic representation that can keep the narrative flowing while a uh, certain kind of ambient, non-narrative, non-active uh, tense story is, uh, well, not the story, actually, the stuff, the, the sensibility, the thing that infuses novel uh, is being made to happen. Um, I think it can be done, like, but it's not as natural in, in comics as it is in, in the novel. So that in it, I think any medium can, each medium is a language all to itself. And in each language, you can <coughs> say things that can be said in other languages, but some things get lost, some things are more difficult to say. Like if you want to talk about snow, it's really good to be able to speak Eskimo because they have lots of words for snow. Um, and in comics, certain things become easier. And I think it's why things like um, crude visual humor, fantasy, superhero stories, science fiction have become a natural trope the comic, um, and why it's very difficult to create uh, a non-genre uh, graphic novel. Uh, part of what happens also is that in, um, well, in the, in the graphic novel as it's developing, um, serious writers haven't, for the most part, been attracted to it. It's just beginning now. And the resulting possibilities remain to be seen. What's happened for the most part is you either have people doing stuff out or directed for syndicates, for comic books, for kids, or whatever, or you have uh, an artist writer, which to me is a very pure thing that happens in comics, but very often impelled by the art rather than by the writer. But Jerry probably has a lot to say about this. Yeah, I totally disagree with you. <laughs> because one of the reasons that I was drawn to the stall is that it was not that kind of vertical run confrontation. It was a real sense of emotion mm -hmm. that Lustal had in the image that did not really need the action. And I thought but one of the things Jack was saying that was difficult in working on the book was finding yeah. a way to avoid talking heads. Well, and that's Jacques is always wrong about his own work because I think that, that the, the marvelous form of the art that he does comes in the bande dessinée. And I think that, that each frame is so spectacular. And if you could just hold up, uh, I mean, if you look at the first page of that, I mean, yeah, I hate to, uh, I'm, I'm advertising Jacques Dostal, not my participation. Look at that. You know, this is extraordinary. And the first page, where, where's the book? Here. Yeah. The first panel of this is just one image. You see, there's no movement whatsoever. It's just one image of, uh, I mean, the sense of mood, the tonality of mood is extraordinary. And, and that was one of the reasons I was drawn to his work is that it was not involved with action at all. It was simply tone that you could, you know, the, the, the link between the image and the in illustration, in picture. So I made a few pi a few stories by myself, but it was more a uh, picture I had in mind uh, that were commented, you know? Comment? Commented. So there were very short stories and uh, very about two pictures in each pages. And, uh, uh, but it couldn't go very far because it was always a bit the same thing because I was, I spoke only about places I, I used to like and travel I, I made. So for the big books, for the novels like that, uh, 
I work always with the scenarists, with, uh, with Jerome Charon. Uh, well, I knew his work, I liked it, uh, his work as a novelist. So, uh, well, when, when we had the occasion to work together, I wanted him to, I wanted to find what I liked in his work, in his novelist work. And so it was a good combination. But before I used to work with another, with uh, three other scenarists, and uh, they are always uh, uh, not professional scenarists, but uh, professional uh, novelists, in fact, novelists or journalists. But um, because for me the story is very important when you want to make a good book, so uh, I'm not able to tell story. I just concentrate on mettre en scène. Like a direction in a movie, you know, but uh, on scene, uh, staging, animate, staging, with all the preoccupation of uh, of the light, mise en scène, mise en scène, cinéma, c'est mise en scène. And for the last question, I'm very involved with Japanese comics, and that's such a large and and varied. Uh, um, industry then I'm surprised I haven't heard a word about it here. Uh, is there any is there any cross influence between uh, European and Japanese comics that you know of? European. Uh, no, I mean I I, I, uh, I have no idea. I mean I'm staggered by the sheer weight of manga. Uh, the Japanese probably produce more comic more weight of comics uh, than any other nation on earth. I mean the, you know compared to the Japanese production of uh, uh, of comics. Um, you know, what is done in France and in America is a tiny amount. I mean, you go into, I remember going into the back room at Kodansha once when I was over in uh, Tokyo, and, uh, the, the, uh, and here was this gigantic stack which looked like the year's supply of the New York Telephone Directory, which uh, happened to be their production of new comic books for that month. Um, unfortunately, uh, I have to leave the matter of how they are done and what they look like to others because quite frankly I've never been able to uh, penetrate this world beyond the curious fact that the Japanese revere their comic strip artists to a degree which would be almost inconceivable. Uh, I mean we talk about the prestige given to bande uh, dessinée artists in, in France and the lack, the lack of it that is enjoyed by American ones but in, I remember when I was in Tokyo in 19, whenever it was, 82 I think, I, there was a bar, Jap Japanese have specialist bars for everything. I mean, if there is a, you know, if there's a particular group of left-handed lesbian cartoonists, it will have its own <laughs> bar. And, uh, the, the, and there was this cartoon, there was this comic strip artist bar in Tokyo, which I was taken to, and I was introduced to a man whose name I now greatly regret having forgotten, who was introduced to me as the god of manga. And they weren't kidding. Osamu Tezuka. Osamu Tezuka. That's right. Yeah, and, 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 you know, he was viewed with a, you know, by his colleagues with a reverence. Which I think there were several that had the name God. He had Emperor God King. I Emperor think. God King of the <laughs> Transcendent <laughs> Emperor God King. Um, the, the, I mean, can anybody cast any light upon why the comic strip uh, has developed this immense momentum and, and cultural weight in Japan, which exceeds anything, in fact, that it, it has in either France or... Uh, America. Mm -hmm. oh, you have well, I'm not sure to answer that. I'm, I, I, 
really am speculating like an outsider too, because Japanese culture is like Martian culture. You know, it's it is Martian culture. <laughs> 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 it is Martian. So the actual reasons why things developed the way they did in Japan, I don't know. But there's a very good book called Manga Manga. Manga it's a, a good history of yeah. Japanese comics and an explanation of it. And maybe it has something to do with the fact that Japanese writing is one step closer. You know, that the kind of uh, picture language is one step closer. Yeah. Maybe that's one of the impulses okay. inside. Today. Very hard. There must be social reason. Uh, another, they say they read it, it. There's no comics collecting in Japan because their apartments there are, are too many, are, the, and the apartments are so they live in oh, cubicles, so they have to throw mm. them out. But there is. So they have to read it. They're read, but they are not collected. Oh no, no. There's a lot of collecting. What they do is yeah, after the telephone book size anthologies. No, no. I mean private collecting of of, of manga. Uh -huh. You cannot collect them. There is very small apartments, so they throw them out. They throw them out. There's one explication, but. Another also uh, Japanese manga have more influence on American on American cartoonists. Yeah, they've, in they've had a big influence on American comics. Probably a very deadly one of like bigger and bigger eyes are beginning to appear. Yeah, in that's American right. Comic books. Now it's like that ghastly effect that Japanese animation has had upon American animation because when the Japanese introduced, uh, the, you know, they got into computer animation for uh, cartoons on, uh, you know, for, for, for uh, cartoon programs on the telly a long time before anybody in Hollywood did. And that is why you have that, you know, you suddenly had that flood of uh, sort of Ninja Turtle-like stuff um, where uh, everybody was talking like this and... You know, eating pizzas? Uh, eating uh, pizzas? No, it was sort of n almost no variation of expression, yeah. no uh, sort of, none of the sort of subtle and intense routines with facial expression you get in, you know, in, 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 in Disney at his best or, or, or Warner Brothers. It's an extreme schematization caused by the, uh, the need to pump enormous quantities of the stuff out. I mean, people fall into routines of drawing faces, which, you know, because they have so many faces the to draw. The production of Japanese comic artists is staggering to me. They'll do 40, 50 pages a day, some of them. I mean, for somebody who works two and weeks a month on a page. one page a year, right? I mean, well, close to. <laughs> but it gets my mature period. It'll be I'd, I'd like to have an advice from each of you. I mean, which is the best BD bookstore in New York City where I could go? Because, you know, I heard that the city of Toulouse was opening its fourth bookstore for the bande dessinée, and Toulouse is not a huge city. So where do I go in New York City to buy BD? Well, there's a couple of shops that are not bad. There's uh -huh. one called uh, Bleecker Street, uh, Village Comics on yes. Bleecker Street. Uh -huh. It's sort of above, a, I think, a Japanese yeah. or Chinese restaurant. That's a rather mm -hmm. good shop. It's First floor and second floor? It's on yes. second floor. It's very uh -huh. well stocked. Uh -huh. It's yeah. diagonally across from the Bleecker Street cinema. Uh -huh. And then there's one called St. Mark's Comics that's also relatively well stocked. Uh -huh. And there's one that seems to have a higher profile, but that isn't, doesn't have as much variety in it called Forbidden uh -huh. Planet. Forbidden Planet. Yeah. Okay, so now, what are you reading these days? One, I mean, Jérôme, what do you read? Which one did you read? I mean, oh, I'm mean, too busy writing them to read them. You don't read. Okay, uh, Art, what do you read? Well, I'm reading, right now we're going through a period of, like, it's the golden age of comics reprinting. So what's happening now is lots and lots of stuff that was unavailable for generations is being made, uh, at least in limited quantities, available. So I'm finding um, large chunks of Crazy Cat, but I only knew in much smaller chunks before. I'm finding uh, the complete uh, LZ Seeger's Popeye is, is now available mm -hmm. in multiple volumes. Uh, uh, Milton Kniff, Roy Crane, uh, Polly and her pals are beginning to be reprinted, Little That's Abner. Interesting. I'm finding myself really catching up on all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Maurice? What do you well, read? I have to read them professionally, so I read everything, you know, even those I don't care. Nothing for pleasure? Oh, no, I do read for pleasure, <laughs> you know, and it's, it's usually the newspaper comics, uh, what Art mentioned were the newspaper, the great classic newspaper comics, but this also Flash Gordon. Do you want the list of uh, some recommended readings? That yes, are yes. Now? 
Uh, I would say that there's a number of things that Catalan has published in small editions that are worth knowing about uh, the translations of uh, European Bédés, so that there's things by um, Munoz and Sampaio, uh, a collection called Joe's Bar. There's uh, two books of Jack Roustal's were translated and are available. There's a Matoidi book. There's the new... Uh, there's a number yeah. of things that are oh, coming out. It's a good introduction to what's happening in Europe. Also, uh, the, the Mobius books have been oh, yes. translated. And let's see, within the so-called underground comics, there's a few very interesting Mobius things. Mobius was in strip? Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. he picked the name. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a pseudonym. And, and you know. His name is Jean Giraud. Add, you know. We should also add that the, the primary publisher of the, U, of the European Bed Day is, is, is Catalan. And Bern Metz is here, who, who is the publisher, and I think that he's done an incredible job. Yeah, I These think are we all books that Bob has there are all Catalan books, and, and they're wonderfully uh, reproduced, and, and one has to really Acknowledge that. Homage to Catalonia. Yes, please. The last book I read uh, was uh, the last Robert Crumb book. Well, here it was never published as a book. It was uh, stuff that Modo Modo Day is a character that was running in Crumb's magazine called Weirdo, and it was published as a book there. And you, Bob? Uh, I pass. I'll read whatever art tells me to read. Yeah, check out the new raw. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, thank you so much for being here. Um, I think there are many more, many, many more panels to go. I think that was one first of a long series. We have to talk about visual arts and, and the bande dessinée, the movies and the bande dessinée, the novel and the bande dessinée. have so much to do. And I, I just feel today that I am back in a, in a bande dessinée, which is in Tintin, L'Etoile Mysterious. It's so hot. I don't know if you read Tintin, L'Etoile Mysterious, The Mysterious Star by Tintin. It's a time where everybody's so hot that something's going to happen. Before finishing, I want to tell you that here is sitting on the second row, the person with, without whom nothing would have been happened here. It's Karen Kennelly, acting director of Pen Club. I want her to spell it. Thank you. And she was helped in her job by Pam Pierce and Mathieu Brunet from the French Embassy. And you know that Blue Style is going to be exhibited at the French Embassy 972 5th Avenue from 10th to 25th of April. If you're going to come and see his exhibition and see you very, very soon. Bye bye.